Please turn your attention to Genesis 41. Just a note, um, I'm gonna, the sermon's going to be on the whole chapter, all 57 verses, but for the sake of time, I thought I'd just read the first 16 verses which appear in your bulletin. But I would suggest if you have it handy on a device or your phone, you might pull up the whole chapter because the sermon is really going to cover the whole chapter. So with that, uh, let me read the first 16 verses of chapter 41, and then I'll get us into the narrative. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. When out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other grains of heads sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he had interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that, you could, when, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We come with anticipation that in your word we will hear your voice. We pray that you'd speak to us a word in season that we need to hear. Help us to have the ears to hear and the hearts to receive. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we are studying the life of Joseph together, and I have suggested that Joseph's life is a story of indestructible hope. And by learning to see our lives through the lens of this story, by seeing through this story and looking at our lives, I think we can experience the same kind of indestructible hope. Uh, this morning's account begins in verse 1, when two full years had passed, and if you are uh, coming here for the first time, it's a reference to the two years that since Joseph had interpreted the cupbearer's dream in prison. The cupbearer is restored to his position, uh, just like Joseph has said, and he proceeds to forget all about Joseph. And one of you mentioned that this is exactly like corporate America. You help someone out, they get promoted, and they forget all about you. Joseph is, is, is forgotten all about in, in the prison. He languishes there for two years, waiting, suffering, living in affliction. It seems like an eternity. There's no end date. It's not, it, it, Joseph doesn't know that it's in two years that he's going to be called up. It's, just, it, it, it's a land of suffering with no end in sight. 
I wonder if there's anyone here living in that land of suffering with no end in sight. Perhaps it's a job you hate with no way out. Perhaps you feel like you chose the wrong career, but it's too late to reinvent yourself. Perhaps you're stuck at a school you don't like or social situation or circumstance you don't like. Perhaps you're in a difficult marriage with a little hope of change. Perhaps you're battling a chronic health condition, which by definition is no, there's no end. It's, it's chronic. There's no end in sight. You're living in a land of suffering with no end in sight. My friends, if you feel this way, you can relate to Joseph. He's a Hebrew young man stuck in prison in Egypt, suffering and all but forgotten. And it would be great to know what Joseph was thinking through all this. But we don't, unfortunately, we don't have his diary. But we, we do glimpse how Joseph is processing all that has happened to him at the end of this chapter when Joseph names his son. And, and if you, you know, biblical names oftentimes carry great meaning and significance, and it's true in this case. Joseph names his son Ephraim because he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of suffering. Apparently, this is how Joseph feels at the end of Genesis 41. He, he, he says, God has not delivered me from my land of suffering. That's how we oftentimes pray. God, God, these are terrible circumstances. Deliver me from these circumstances. Joseph doesn't say that God delivered him from his land of suffering. He says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. God, Genesis 41 tells us that God can make us fruitful in the land of our suffering. There are three reasons why I think God makes Joseph and us, why he can make us fruitful in the land of our suffering, and I'd like to consider them this morning. God rules over all, God raises up, and God redeems. God rules over all, he raises up, and he redeems. First, God rules over all. In Genesis 41, Pharaoh has two dreams. The first one, he's standing by the Nile, and there are seven cows, sleek and fat, and they're grazing by the reeds. And this is not unusual. In Egyptian culture, the Nile was a source of prosperity and life. And these fat cows are a symbol of prosperity. They're grazing by the, the source of, of Egypt's prosperity, the Nile. Then seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, come up out of the Nile. They must have been a little grotesque in the dream because further on in the chapter, the Pharaoh says, I've never, he'd never seen such ugly cows in Egypt. And they proceeded to eat up the fat cows. It was essentially a nightmare. Pharaoh wakes up and is troubled. It's a foreboding dream. And he has a sense that it's, it's telling him that something bad is about to happen. And then he has another dream. Seven heads of grain are... are are, uh, are growing on a single stock. It's another picture of prosperity. This never happens that seven uh, heads of grain are, are appear in one stock, but it does in the dream. It's a picture of prosperity. And then seven other heads appear, thin and scorched by the east wind. And the seven thin heads of grain swap the seven healthy heads, and Pharaoh wakes up from the dream. He's so troubled, he calls for magicians and wise men to interpret the dream, but no one can. And that's when the cupbearer remembers Joseph. He says to the Pharaoh, I remember there was a Hebrew young man in prison with me who had the ability to interpret dreams. 
He interpreted my dream and things turned out just as he said they would. I was restored. And Pharaoh must be feeling some sense of urgency about his dreams because he sends for Joseph immediately to be brought up from the dungeon. Joseph shaves and changes his clothes. Culturally, Hebrews wore beards. Egyptians did not. They were clean shaven. So to appear before the, the Pharaoh, Joseph shaves, changes his clothes and comes before the, the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I had a dream and no one can interpret it for me, but I heard you can. And Joseph says, I cannot. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. In this moment, here's Joseph identifying himself as a Christian in a completely pagan culture. He is the non-anxious presence in the room. Calm, unafraid of Pharaoh, utterly confident in God. And he will proceed to demonstrate the superior wisdom of God to the best wisdom of all the Egyptians. Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams, and Joseph provides this interpretation. Verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Joseph here presents a massive view of God, the God of the Bible, to the Pharaoh. The Nile is, again, the source and power of life and fertility. Every Egyptian depended on the Nile. The Pharaoh himself depended on the Nile. And Joseph here says God controls the Nile. God controls the weather patterns. God controls the entire Egyptian economy. He can send years of prosperity or he can send years of famine. God controls, therefore, the whole future of the nation of Egypt. Three times Joseph says, this is what God will do. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in Egypt, is helpless and impotent before God. Because it's God who rules over economies, nations, and rulers. I don't know if you've read Colin Hansen's book on the intellectual and spiritual formation of Tim Keller, who passed away recently. If you've uh, read that book, you'll know that the person who taught Tim Keller how to read the Bible in Bible was in college was a woman named Barbara Boyd. Barbara Boyd apparently was a campus minister, and the book tells about one specific lesson she, she taught Tim on the lordship of Jesus Christ at a month-long camp in Colorado. Barbara Boyd apparently said something like this. If you want to invite me into your house and you say, come in, Barbara, stay out, Boyd, I wouldn't know what to do because I'm Barbara Boyd. In fact, I couldn't even say this half is Barbara and this half is Boyd, so I'll just bring this half in because I'm all Barbara and I'm all Boyd. I'm both, so you either get all of me or you get neither of me. And then here's a turn. She says, if you say, I would like the loving Jesus, 
I would like the helping Jesus. I would like the Jesus who I can ask to help through hard times, but you know, I don't want the holy Jesus. I don't want the powerful Jesus. I don't want the Jesus who is great. If you say that, you get no Jesus at all. She says this, think about this for a minute. If the distance between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, if the 96 million miles between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, do you realize the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high? Just the diameter of our little galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our little galaxy is just a speck of the universe. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the word of his power. So Barbara Boyd says Jesus Christ holds the universe together with his pinky. Do you ask someone like that into your life to be your assistant? See, Barbara Boyd presents a massive view of Jesus, the Son of God. And Joseph here is presenting to the Pharaoh this massive view of God, the God who rules over the universe, who rules over the weather, who rules over the Nile River, who rules over the economy and the future of individuals and nations. And if that's true, that calls for two things in Genesis 41. First, it calls for humility. See, Joseph says, I cannot do it, but God can. That's humility. That's what we need to learn to, to say to ourselves and our, our bosses and our friends and colleagues and neighbors. I, I, I can't do that, but God can. And give him the credit for what he enables. It's humility. That's a response. And then another response is action, curiously. In response to God's sovereign rule, the response is action. See, so many people say, if God's sovereign, then I really, there's nothing I can do. I'm not really responsible. If God is sovereign, I'm, I'm just a robot. My decisions don't matter. They're meaningless. If God is sovereign, I'm just going to take a back seat here. I'm just going to be passive. But here, look at this. For Joseph, God's sovereign rule is a call to action, not resignation. He says to the Pharaoh, God is telling me this. God is telling you this for a reason. When the winds of God's sovereignty begin to blow, it's time to set your sails. And so Joseph said, I would suggest, in light of what God's going to do, I would suggest that you appoint a wise and discerning man and put him in charge of, of commissioners and start collecting in the years of prosperity a fifth of all the harvest and store it up so you can be ready for the famine. God rules over all. The response, therefore, is humility and action. Secondly, God not only rules over all, he raises up. After Joseph suggests this plan of action, Pharaoh says in verse 38, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God, referring to Joseph? Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And God, in one day, dramatically raises up Joseph. He goes from the prison to the palace in one day. He goes from the pit to the pinnacle. He goes from being a prisoner who takes orders to a prime minister who gives orders. 
And he receives all the symbols of this power and authority. We're given all the details. He receives the signet ring of the Pharaoh, which is like the, the Pharaoh's personal signature. He pressed it into clay to sign documents, and he gives this to, to Joseph. It's like giving someone your credit card and saying, here, here you go, it's for you. He dresses Joseph in robes of fine linen and gold chain. That was royal garb. He has Joseph ride in a chariot as second in command, and the people shout, a breck, a breck, which is a Hebrew word meaning to make way or to bow down. God is already fulfilling his promise to Joseph that people will bow down before him. Joseph gets a new Egyptian name, symbolizing his new position. He receives a wife, establishing his social status. At age 30, Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt. Back a couple weeks ago, we started Joseph's story. He was 17 years old. And in 13 years, he rises to the second most powerful man in the ancient world. It's not a bad career arc. And the question is, is this promise for us? Is there a sense in which God raises us? Certainly God does not promise us political success if we run for office. God does not promise that we will receive, we will achieve a certain amount of career achievement in our jobs. After all, Stephen's martyred. Paul, this great man of faith, is thrown into a prison. John is exiled at the end of his life. And yet 1 Peter 5, 6, which was part of our New Testament reading this morning, says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. What does that mean? It means that God can do it in an earthly sense. He did it for Joseph. But ultimately, I think the promise is that God will raise us up spiritually when we become Christians and physically when Christ returns. Remember the prodigal son? In that parable that Jesus tells? When the prodigal son comes home to his father, what does he receive? He receives a ring and a robe and a feast. It's, a, it's an image of how God welcomes us home when we come home to him spiritually. We receive a ring and a robe and a feast as symbols that we are royal sons and daughters of the king. And when Christ returns, he will raise us up physically, gloriously. Philippians 3 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In other words, my friends, Christ's resurrection body is a model for ours. Christ's resurrection body was physical. It could be touched. He ate fish. It was recognizable. I mean, maybe not initially, but the disciples knew it was eventually Jesus. And it was glorious. And powerful, he could pass through walls. He ascended into heaven. And, and what Philippians 3 is saying, our resurrection bodies will be physical and recognizable and glorious and powerful. We're raised from the dead and given new resurrection bodies. Our home will be in the new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem, the city coming down out of heaven to earth as an indication that heaven will not be a material place. Sometimes the, the popular image of heaven is we'll, we'll be floating on clouds, bodiless spirits playing harps for, for all eternity, which I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very exciting to me. Thankfully, that's not the biblical picture of heaven. 
Heaven will not be an immaterial place. We will have renewed bodies that can be touched and recognized and will live on a renewed earth, the new heavens and the new earth. See, eternity will be this world, these mountains, these rivers, these cities, but renewed. And the question is, what will we do for all eternity? There are little hints in Scripture that we will rule and reign with Christ. 1 Timothy 2, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Paul says, don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6. Revelation 22 says, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. And they will reign forever and ever. We will rule and reign with Christ for all eternity. I mean, it stands to reason, when God created Adam and Eve, in his image, he placed them in the garden to do what? To fill and subdue the earth. To rule over the fish and the birds and every living thing. To exercise dominion over creation. And guess what? In eternity, this calling is going to be restored. We will rule and reign with Christ. We'll exercise dominion over all creation. God raises us up to this. You know, it's like being born into a wealthy family. Think about that. What would it be like to be born into a wealthy family? Maybe it'd be like this. Your dad owns businesses and properties around the world. Which means that when you come of age, there is a position of leadership and responsibility waiting for you. I mean, that's your future. You're going to join the family business as an exec or VP. Your, your future is secure. But what does that mean? You still have to go to high school. You still have to experience all the ups and downs of the teen years. You still get acne. You still experience secondhand embarrassment from your parents. You still experience breakups with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You still have to go to college as an important part of your growth and development, part of your preparation for greater responsibility. But you don't have to focus on performance and grades can focus on learning and growing because you have the hope that one day your dad will raise you up to leadership and authority. My friends, this is the Christian hope. Your heavenly father owns the universe. He owns properties around the universe and has work around the universe. And he will raise us up one day and give us a resurrected body just like Jesus Christ and make us co-heirs with Christ. You see, all that Christ inherits will be ours as well. And we will rule and reign with Christ for all eternity. That's why 1 Peter says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. So if you're a Christian, what this means is the narrative arc of Joseph's life is your narrative arc. The story that God is writing in your life and my life is not a comedy. A comedy is fun and entertaining, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really have any meaning or purpose. It's not a comedy. It's not a tragedy that will end in sadness and loss. It's a story of indestructible hope. God will raise us up to a new life in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you're here, you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, probably in your head you're saying, that's too good to be true. But in your, your heart, I hope you're saying, I want this to be true. Because that's the indestructible hope that pulls us forward in a, in, in a world where so much is going wrong. 
God rules. God raises up. And then lastly, God redeems. When Joseph becomes prime minister at age 30, this is what happens. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph is extremely successful in his career. So much so that the grain becomes like the land of the, sea, uh, the sand of the sea and he stops counting. It's like making so much money, you don't, you don't even have to budget anymore. Joseph has two sons in Egypt, and, he, and interestingly, he gives them Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. In other words, Joseph has apparently not forgotten his core identity as a Hebrew. He looks Egyptian. He shaved his head, shaved his beard. He wears Egyptian clothes. He has an Egyptian name. He has an Egyptian wife. He speaks the Egyptian language. But he's maintained the Hebrew faith and his Hebrew identity, as evidenced by what he names his sons. The first he names Manasseh, because God has made him forget all his troubles in his father's household. Joseph had some pretty painful memories. His own brothers sold him off into slavery, which meant that at age 17, he was ripped away from his home and his family, and he was sent off to grow up in a foreign land all by himself. And you say, how do you forget that? I mean, we all have painful memories that we'd like to forget. We've all been on the receiving end of hurt and betrayal and perhaps even injustice, maybe even at the hands of our own family. See, Joseph certainly remembers this. In future chapters, we'll see, Joseph certainly remembers his brothers. He certainly remembers what they've done to him. But what does it mean that he forgets? It means that he no longer dwells on these past hurts. They no longer have this hold on him. They no longer make him bitter and angry. He sees them now in a new light. And you say, how, how do you do that with painful memories? Well, the key is what he names his second son. Joseph names his second son Ephraim because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph now has a wife and two sons in Egypt in this foreign land. He is successful at his job beyond his imagination. And so when the famine hits, there's no food in the other lands, but in Egypt there's, there's food. And the last verse of this chapter says this, and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. God saves the entire world through Joseph. God makes Joseph fruitful in the land of suffering. He doesn't deliver him from the land of suffering he makes him fruitful in the land of his suffering. God has made Joseph forget these painful things because God has made him fruitful in such a way that he can let go of past hurts and injustices because he sees them in the light of redemption. It's like the symbol of the cross. 
in first century Rome, the cross was a terrible symbol of suffering and shame and disgrace. It was the death reserved for the worst of humanity. The worst criminals were crucified. And that's why in the first century, no one wore a cross around their neck. Why would you? I mean, it'd be like, hanging, like you know, wearing a, an electric chair and a chain around your neck. It would be, it'd be morbid. Why would you do that? And that's why the disciples considered Jesus' death on the cross a utter defeat and a moment of utter despair. And yet God's work of redemption changed the whole way we see a cross. Because in that cross, God was accomplishing our redemption. Transforming our whole understanding of a cross. Now making it a symbol of our salvation and our redemption and our hope. And that's why we wear it on chains around our neck. That's why we carve crosses out of wood and place them at the front of our rooms and sanctuaries. My friends, it's what God does in Joseph's life. He redeems Joseph in such a way that he sees all of his past in a new light. He makes him fruitful in the land of his suffering so he's able to let go of his past. It's like these words in Dostoevsky's novel, Brothers Karamazov. One of the characters in that novel says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of a man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. I think those words capture a Christian view of redemption. Something to come that is so precious that it will suffice for all hearts and comfort all resentments and enable forgiveness and justify all that has happened. That's what happens to Joseph. Something so precious happens to them that, that it colors his, it, it, how he views a whole past. It comforts him in his resentment. He's ena en enabled, as we'll see, to forgive his brothers for what they've done to him. God can make us fruitful in the land of our suffering. How? Because Joseph points to one greater than himself. You see, my friends, Joseph is humiliated to the depths so that can be raised to the heights, to the right hand of the Pharaoh. All are commanded to bow down to Joseph, and through him, through one man descended from Abraham, the nations are saved and blessed. And in the same way, Jesus Christ is humiliated to the depths so they can be raised to the heights, to the right hand of God the Father. Before him, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and through him, the ultimate descendant of Abraham, the nations are saved and blessed. Through Jesus, God's promises are given to us. God in Christ rules over our lives for good. God will raise us up to glory in Jesus Christ. And God will redeem us in Jesus Christ and make us fruitful in the land of our suffering. Samuel Rutherford puts it this way. He says, just the first of Jesus' kisses will make up for 500 years of sore hearts.
Jesus is so precious that he will comfort all resentments, enable forgiveness, and justify all that has happened to us. Jesus will make us fruitful in the land of our suffering. I don't know when. For Joseph, it took 13 years. I don't know when it will happen for us. But God says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and I will lift you up in due time. Put your trust in him. Don't put your trust in the Pharaoh or the Nile River. Put your trust in God who has sent us a Savior in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're writing a story in our lives that is not a comedy, even though there's joy. It's not a tragedy that will end in sadness and loss. It is a story of indestructible hope because at the end of our days, there will be a robe in a ring. There will be a raising up to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. There will be a feast. There will be redemption and restoration that casts all of our painful memories in a new light. Lord, thank you for this hope. Help us to live in light of it. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.